0: Love, Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to thank you for joining us. Tonight we have a really special program, and as I've been telling you, I think it may be one of the most important interviews um, that I have the pleasure of doing here on the Coffee Clatch. I'm not sure if you're aware, but MetLife has a special needs planning division. And um, not only you know are they exceptional in helping families plan, but they've also conducted a study, um, Torn Security Blanket, and I love the name of the study. And there were over a 1,000 um, special needs caregivers involved, and it was really eye-opening. And it led to a plan of action that parents or guardians really need to take. And I'm very thrilled that I have Kelly Piacente with us today, and she is the... the director, the National Director of MetLife Center for Special Needs Planning. We have Bob Westbrook with us. He's a certified financial planner, and he deals with families with special needs. We have Adam Zambudo, who is the Senior Market Research Consultant for MetLife, and he was responsible for providing the market research, the support, and the um, insights to the organization for the study, Torn Security Blanket. So thank you, everyone, for joining us.
1: Great. Thank you for having us, Marianne.
0: You're welcome. I mean, you have quite an impressive um, list of organizations that you work with also. You work with the ARC, the Autism Society, Huntington Disease. Um, The list just goes on and on. Um, You know, you, you really are exceptional in what you do. So, Kelly, why don't you tell us first off, what does the Special Needs Planning Division do? Well, the division was
1: actually created in 1998 um, to provide MetLife's traditional commitment of public service for families with dependents of any age, from infant to senior, who had a disability. The center is really and continues to be committed to help families through the maze of legal and financial complexities surrounding planning for the future of dependents with special needs. The person that created the MetLife Center for Special Needs Parent I mean, for Special Needs Planning, was actually a parent that was a caregiver herself and really felt that MetLife needed to take notice of this population and do something about some of the dependents that we were taking care of for one of the ifs in life, so that people like my son and other people that have developmental disabilities, we would be able to assist them and plan properly for them. So the center was created to help these families, to help educate the families, to secure both lifetime care and quality of life. And it was really a way to walk the families through the process. We took the time and the opportunity to pick the right individuals to be in this program. MetLife picks a very specific group of individuals. You must have an affinity for the market in order to even participate in the program. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a caregiver. It means that you have to be someone involved in the special needs community, or have a reason to be in this particular market. Eighty-two percent of the planners that work in the MetLife Center for Special Needs Planning are also special needs parents, caregivers, siblings, or somebody that's actively involved in the nonprofit.
0: So we really that's try to just That's really just so important because um, you really need to feel it to understand it. And so you know, exactly. I, I think that's fantastic.
1: Exactly, and that's what it's about. I would never want someone to come into my home or sit with my family and be taken back by the fact that one of my four children can only smile. So, our planners are really prepared to work with the family, and many of them are in our shoes as well, so they're great with the families. This is really a nice program that MetLife has because we work with families across the country to help them plan for this individual. So that when they're not around, this person will have the same things that they would always have when you were there,
0: yeah, you know, and I think that it really a lot of it comes down to quality of life, and um you know i I think a big mistake that parents make is that they assume that if they appoint a guardian that everything will be taken care of, and it is such a huge mistake. I, th- I think you found in the study that um, even in areas where caregivers have made significant strides, a knowledge gap remains. Less than 27% of caregivers are familiar with the steps involved in identifying a guardian, someone to act as a representative for their dependent, um, as well as you know, the, the real specifics that we're going to talk about. Right, Um I think it's a fallacy that I'm
1: sorry I think it's a fallacy that people assume that because you have a sibling or another dependent that the person is going to be willing to take take care of the dependent with special needs. I have three other children. It doesn't necessarily mean because that's my wishes that one of my other children will take care of them that that will actually happen. As we all know, life happens and you need to have a backup plan in the event that that caregiver or the person you want to take care of your dependent with special needs is not available. So that's one of the things that we try to work with families is to make a plan, a plan for everything that could possibly happen when you're no longer there.
0: And, you know, I I know know, we spoke a few minutes before the show. I mean, I, I lose sleep over this. Um, I'm sure most parents do. I mean, it's just it's so frightening to think with you know, everything that we do, we, we pretty much are responsible for all the care and um guidance for these kids. And you know, also Siblings, siblings also, um, adult siblings need to, to know what to do also because they may wind up with the burden of having to make these decisions. Um, Adam, I wanted to talk to you a bit. If you could just tell us about this torn security blanket because it is really outstanding. I've been putting it out for the past month. So can you just tell us a little bit of the basic background of the study, why you did it, and um, you know maybe shed some light on things that really um, surprised you?
2: Sure. Um Thanks for uh thanks for having us. Uh and I'm I'm glad you're getting this study out there. Uh so the the Torn Security Blanket um was a study that MetLife originally did um back in 2006 uh to understand the issues facing uh those uh caregivers um of dependents with special needs. Um it had been a while since we had had re- had done it um and we wanted to sort of to, to reinvigorate it uh and bring it back um so that we could start talking about these issues again. Um the, the study was uh, was sort of two phases. Uh, the first was a uh an online survey of um caregivers of dependents with special needs and those were um all sorts of, of special needs. Uh and then after that we actually followed it up with um what we called the uh, in depth bulletin board focus groups uh where we uh talked very specifically uh to caregivers um about some of the issues that came up and that we learned from in the in the survey. Um so we have a lot of breadth uh in terms of the, the amount of people that we talk to um but also a lot of depth in terms of uh you know what caregivers uh, expressed as some of their concerns and some of their worries. Uh Anna, I think, what,
0: what disabilities did you in, in were incorporated in this study? Was it very broad?
2: It was very broad. Um it incorporated uh developmental Emotional, medical, physical, and cognitive disabilities. So it was it was a, a broad reach of uh, of the disabilities.
0: Okay, and um, as you said, this was done. <coughs> excuse me. Um, a while back. Um, you know, I, I was curious in this. Uh, maybe, um, you know, Bob, you can answer this. As far as the economic climate right now, how is that impact- impacting people's plans?
3: Well, um, of course, only about 10% of the public seems to have taken steps to do proper planning anyway, so the economy certainly hasn't helped. I'm located in the southwest, and it's been hit especially hard. It certainly depends on the state uh, that you're in, uh, of course, but uh, I think that the main thing is is they're just overwhelmed with all of the other stresses in life uh, that are distracting them on a day-to-day basis, Uh, so it makes it a little bit tougher. All
0: right. And you know, but Bob, when people come in to you, because you're a financial planner, you are specific with special needs. um, What do you find is the biggest um, stumbling block for people for even getting to you? Have they told you what you know? Why sometimes there's such a delay?
3: Well, I think that a lot of uh, of the consumers that are faced with these issues, first of all, don't uh, they're they're guarded. They don't talk to financial planners. uh, investment professionals, uh, and even lawyers about their special needs situation because I think a lot of times they don't think it's any anyone's business and they don't understand that the planning for families that have uh, a family member with a special need uh, is completely different than traditional financial planning. So, you know, they would rely on Google or, or you know, some magazine or something for, for guidance and very often think with a false sense of security that they've taken some steps uh, to to get their their life in order uh, as their neighbors have, but what they don't realize is they're making huge mistakes that could adversely affect uh, their child and or family member. Um, so that's I think the biggest one up front. Um, and other than that, it's just uh, the you know the overwhelming demands on their time. Uh, like every American, uh, there's so many different things pulling at us in our time and our free time. Uh, and obviously, a family that has a special needs scenario—it's even more difficult uh, because of the, based on the situation they're dealing with.
2: I think Bob actually brought up a, a good point, and, and sort of one of the surprising, well, maybe not surprising aspects of what we found in the study, was really this idea of, uh, you know, families with dependents with special needs have the same concerns that other families have um, that aren't also then now dealing with. Um, a dependent who has these special needs and the special planning. Um, So that's really something that we found was the frustration that a lot of um, these families face just making ends meet, um, let alone (laughs) taking the next step they need to meet with an advisor and working with an advisor to sort of figure out all this extra stuff as well.
1: Right. I think that one of the other things that we found is that they spend more than 40 hours a week tending to the care of this individual um, with special needs. So the family is really being pulled in every direction, and part of our survey also revealed that three in five, which is about 59% of the caregivers were telling us that there's still very little information about financial planning out there, and over half still say that the information is too difficult to find. So though we know the need is out there and these families are struggling, they still don't know where to go for the information or how to start the process. So that's one of the things that we're hearing. We heard it five years ago. We're continuing to hear it. We are hearing that the uh, the economic view is different. But on the other hand, we're also hearing that... These families need to plan more now than ever because services and different things that they were getting before that they were possibly getting may not be around in a few years, so they really need to start the planning process. That was
0: just my next question. (laughs) Um, That's exactly what I was going to uh, ask you about. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, I think that um, securing benefits is so important, And I think a lot of people just assume they're not entitled to or unaware of different types of benefits and services. Um, And, you know, I'm not sure, but is this something that you would also be able to help them with or is this something that they would do before or after they've, put this in place? Because, you know, like you said, services are being cut. The, you know, the the, the state of care for especially children with mental illness in this country is a national disgrace, um, you know, but there are still services out there. So how would they go about finding them?
1: Well, every one of the planners, and we have over 200 across the country, they don't just speak to them about financial or planning in that way, they also speak to them about holistic planning. Many of the families that we work with don't realize that they are eligible for some type of benefit. So working with some of the national nonprofits, and we work with some of the, the largest nonprofits in the country, we do provide the families that we work with with a local um, support group or a local nonprofit to call them and seek some information from them. Many of our planners will go through the process with the family and say to them, did you apply for DDD or whatever it is in their particular state, and we'll find that many of the families never did it. So we do try to refer them to some of the nonprofits that we work with so that the nonprofit could possibly help this family, whereas they are the largest service provider in the country. So in many instances, if they call a local Autism Society or a local United Cerebral Palsy, they may find out about information for services and support that they're not getting that they could possibly get. So we do try to help them with it. We also have a core group of families that realize that they have been receiving supports and services, and that money is drying up. Um, Respite programs across the country are changing. Many families relied upon sending an individual to have a weekend away from the family so that the person could also be involved with other individuals. Some of those programs are being cut. So the family needs to regroup and they need to start planning again. And if that's really important to the family, then they need to figure out a way that this person can continue to have a type of respite if that's what they really need. So those are some of the things we work with. We work with holistic planning as well. It's not just about putting money in a special needs trust, and that's the end of it. It's doing some of the things that the family wants or the person wants. Do you want them to go out to dinner once a week? Do you want them to go to a ball game? What is it that you want for this person, and what does the person want for themselves? And those are some of the things we try to get the family to think about.
0: Kelly, did you by some chance get my outline before the show? Because you you are getting every question before I answer before I, I, answer. I was Are you stalking anyone? I did not send an outline, by the way. I do not um, work for your radio show. Um, Bob, you know that was my question. I was going to actually jump over to you with um, was that you know how specific can they get? Say that they they don't want their child put in. Certain residential places say they want they want their child to be involved in certain activities. Um, how specific can um, a parent's wishes be, and how do they go about choosing a guardian to follow their wishes?
3: Well, it's complicated, but I think the if you don't mind, I'd like to back up to one add one thing about the last question you asked um, Kelly regarding getting benefits, and I think it was an interesting finding in the study that only three percent of the respondents were self-employed. And that's because most self-employed individuals have a very difficult time obtaining the basics of medical insurance if they're not on Medicaid. And so, therefore, they're relying on uh, group insurance from employers, uh, large employers typically because they're going to have access to better quality uh, group insurance benefits. But then moving on to the areas of, of care, like Kelly was mentioning, such as you know the 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 weekend away or respite or whatever that 's where uh, the holistic planning comes in and one of the biggest uh, i think missing links that most families haven 't employed is what we call a letter of intent. Uh, we found that over seventy percent have no idea what that is, and in a, in a nutshell, all it is is a, a written document that expresses what is the desires of the primary caregiver for that person that has a special need. And and we're not just talking about, you know, where they what they like to eat or where they like to go, but what doctors work, what doctors don't work. Right. Know, everybody seems to have somebody that uh, is taboo because they didn't hear what they needed to hear and they didn't get the kind of care that they needed. Um, it might just be uh, I, I heard uh, a very interesting story from one of the founders – uh, and leaders of, of uh, the special needs planning group at MetLife, uh, where he has a situation with his uh, child that has autism, and he said that there's 26 steps that he has to go through to get his child to bed at night. I right. have never experienced that, so I didn't understand it, but I can appreciate the fact that if he misses one of those steps, that child's not going to sleep. And what if that parent got sick, passed away, um, you know, wanted a occasion, anything, uh isn't it isn't it fair to build a, a notebook if you will and it doesn't have to be written it could be video it could be audio it could be a uh, it could be written down it could be a combination of media to help the people that are going to step in in place of that caregiver to make that child's life a little easier just the simple things in life so uh,
0: right.
3: you
0: know it's I, a I, I I advocate very strongly um that really one of the main jobs that you now take on with you know the, the list of all the others is you know you are now a medical historian for this child and being a medical historian is very important and you know i tell parents it's important because you forget things in the heat of the moment when you're stressed out you forget what reaction they had to this or what worked or what didn't work and i tell them but most importantly god forbid you're not there you need documentation of the doctors that worked. What didn't work? it's so important, and this is what's going to be important in the planning as well. And to go back to what you were talking about with um, self-employment, um, I just did a show Wednesday night, and you know basically what we spoke about is the fact that many parents, um, either by, cho- by choice are being forced to leave the workplace to care for these kids and it's putting them in a very bad position as far as insurance goes. So I think that it's those parents, even in particular, that will need to really be very careful in their financial planning. Um, Adam, I want to start getting into this study. Um, Tell us about the study, and tell us what you found most surprising and most important.
2: Well, the the things I think that we found... Most surprising or most important was the the was the information available and and really the time that caregivers had to to digest that information uh you know even with the prevalence of of the internet and the boom of of what's available on the internet you know we still had you know so many people who said you know we had almost sixty some odd percent of people who said that there's not enough information out there on things like financial assistance and planning for the dependent's future, and that even the information out there was difficult to find. Um, so, you know, even even as all of these resources come available, it was still a big challenge for people. Um, I do actually think, you know, for, for someone uh, myself who's not a – who who doesn't have a dependent, I'm not a caregiver of somebody with special needs, um, just surprised at at, at how people – um, are able to get through things. Um, I think what's the, the, the beauty of all this and all the challenges that we, we pulled out of the survey about not having the time to do financial planning or having difficulty getting the services needed or things like that. Um, just how actually, uh, how, how resilient people are. I mean, uh, I think one of my favorite quotes, um, that we got from somebody in, in our, in our focus group was where you said although caring and planning can be ridiculously frustrating and irritating it all smiles when i it it all fades when i see his smile uh and no amount of red tape ridiculous bureaucracy or time spent getting it right will keep us from seeing to that meaning that he that their uh, son lives as comfortably as he can happily and comfortably as he can so i think that was the dichotomy there that there's this there are these challenges there that but that caregivers really want to get it right um and that all of the challenges that the world kind of puts in the way aren't going to stop them from doing that.
0: Right, and I think that level of impairment, you know, is important, too, because, you know, when you're talking about people that have, you know, catastrophic um, disabilities, you know, clearly the needs, I think, sometimes can be more easily laid out. Um, but then there are those that have the invisible disabilities, you know, mental illness or um, are, are lesser impaired. Um and I think that you know it, that that's really important too, because you just don't know, um, you know. So how how does someone how does someone know how to sift through by the information that you found? Because I, I believe in your study that you found that there were emotional obstacles in parents getting this right as well. So you know, what what do parents that say have a child that has a mental illness? What might be holding them back from getting this right?
2: Well, I the i think the um when you talk about the emotional it, it spans even those that don't that that it spans all of the the caregivers um you know the idea of the, they don't really know where to start um so it's it's an overwhelming process uh there's also the emotional aspect of not um not wanting to think about the fact that you're not going to be there anymore that you are not going to be there to care for your your dependent um so all of those really play into it you know, plus the pressure of getting it right, um, you know, the concerns I think Kelly sort of mentioned about um, having to pass that burden on to somebody else. Um, you know, who do you ask? Are you asking the right person? Is it fair for you to ask them? Those are sort of the emotional things that, that we learned that I think all caregivers deal with. Um, but more specifically, you said about, you know, sort of some of the, the cognitive or, or uh, emotional or quote-unquote hidden disorders Um you know, they talk of uh, several caregivers we talked to. You know, talked about how how hard it is when when the world can't see what you know, mm-hmm. um, and that the lack of sympathy then that you get um, from people who who may not truly think that that your your dependent needs the special care, um, and that the, the struggle that they then also face um, from that aspect as well.
0: Right. You know, a lot of parents say, "I don't think about dying because I can't." And that's
2: that's that's dead on. And and you know it's it's something it's something that as a life insurance company, um, you know, when we when we're trying to just sell anybody life insurance, it's it's a hard discussion to have with somebody. You don't want to think about your own mortality. Um but it's especially daunting for caregivers who have dependents who rely on them. Um I can't you know, right. the, the idea of I can't die, so there's no, no need to plan for it because I I can't do it.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> um right. it's it's a struggle, yeah.
0: Bob, um, let me ask you, how would the age of consent play a role? Because, you know, age of consent, you know, it depends on state, but it's usually 18 years old. And, um, you know, it's basically a time that HIPAA kicks in, that you know, people have privacy, um, you know, for their medical information and their care. Um, how could a parent um, get around the age of consent to have somebody be able to make decisions?
3: Well, you can approach it before age 18, and go through the courts and try to get um, that uh, provision or or the guardianship dealt with, Um, once the age 18 date comes and goes, it becomes much more difficult. It depends, of course, on the disability. Are we talking about something with a developmental disability or some, you know, catastrophic uh, injury or whatever? Uh, So it does vary, but I think that uh, a a good story or good analogy is, you know, how about the, the child who has a developmental disability and turns age 18 and is out at the park playing ball like other people and um you know they fall and they break their arm but they want to still play ball and they don't realize that they need to go to the ER and as an adult they have the right not to go so mm-hmm. uh it's a it's a very important area that that needs to be considered um and it does vary um uh, based on the on the disability
1: right And I I think one of the other things, Marianne, about guardianship is that families and parents and caregivers think it's an all or nothing. You could have an individual that you could um, petition the court for partial guardianship because maybe this person lives independently and can make those decisions on their own. They live, they do exactly what they need to do, but you may want to make decisions regarding financial that they don't get into a situation, or you may want to make decisions regarding just the medical. So guardianship is not all or nothing. They should begin the process prior to the age of 18. Many of the local and state agencies can help them with that if they have not started the process. Um, A special needs attorney can help them with it as well. But in the event that a family is considering guardianship, they do have to have it if the person requires care, and assistance, and you want to be involved, but it is not necessarily an
0: all-or-nothing. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, in, in this study, um, I believe it was in the study, I know I had read it somewhere that, you know, I think that there is a misunderstanding that, say, whatever money you do have um, that you plan on leaving, that it can't all be put in bulk amounts, um and that there are le- limits and there are really pitfalls to doing something like that so can anyone speak to that
3: um i'll take a shot at it um i'm not sure what <laughs> reference that you're, that you're giving i know that a lot of our families that we deal with um you know the, in the old days their their way of dealing with um, providing for money is they would simply disinherit that child so that that child's benefits government benefits don't mm-hmm. uh, get interrupted And uh, inevitably there's always, you know, the Uncle Charlie who um, wants to leave something for, you know, the nephew or their niece or whatever, and that inadvertently because they weren't informed or aware that um, leaving uh, a sizable amount of funds to that person uh, will, in fact, put that person at the back of the line when it comes to uh, government benefits again. Um, So the newer approach would be, of course, to establish a special needs trust, and you know it's generally funded with things like life insurance and retirement plans and that type of thing. Um, and uh, then, of course, you name a trustee to um, make the decisions and write the checks on behalf of that person. So you're not interrupting, uh, interrupting uh, you know the government benefits that they're that they're really needing. Um, as far as whether it be a little bit of money or a lot of money or put in a little bit of time or or in bulk, uh, it doesn't matter. All
0: right. Um, Adam, you have over ten years of marketing research experience. You've worked in political polling, and you know. I was just curious, just get a personal question. How did you find doing this study or marketing us as a whole, special needs uh, people in the special needs community, different than any other type of marketing you've done?
2: That's a, a, a that's a good question. I- i liken it um i liken it more to to, to marketing in a an affinity group um the the truth is 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 that you know caregivers uh with special needs are no different than than any other uh part of the population or any other family really um they have you know so many of the exact same concerns so many of the exact same constraints uh not only on their time but on their wallets. Um it's just that extra added concern that's that that other families like them don't always face um right. but I think what what's what was really interesting in in doing this was uh particularly when we got into the into the the focus group discussion and, and into the in depth interviews um because it was a it was a group it was a uh, group on a on a bulletin board answering questions and interacting with themselves interacting within the group rather, um, is the, the the affinity of it, um, the sort of pulling together aspect um among them and the, the willingness to share information um between members of the group and try to help each other out, um which is not something you always see uh when doing this type of when, when doing research with, with consumers. Um and then, you know, just the the, the uh that people want to talk about it. Um you know, this is a big part of their life, and they want to talk about it, and they want to they want to let let be let it be known. You know what their struggles are.
0: Right. Right. I mean, there is no other group like the special needs community. You know, there's a Chinese proverb: "To know the road ahead, ask those coming back." And you know, it's never truer um, than when special needs uh, children and planning. So the torn security blanket: children and adults with special needs and the planning gap. It's really just so unique. And so important, and um Kelly, you put together a ten step plan, and it 's for caregivers to get started in preparing for the financial future of their independent um children and as you say, each circumstance is unique, so caregivers should consider their own situation carefully um in guide in, in you know listening to your ten points so let 's get started why don 't we start with plan one, and each of you could just you know take a turn um Giving you just elaborating on it. So number one, you have plan for future medical, educational, and housing needs for your dependent.
1: Right, and that was one of the things that we were considering. When I sat down to do this, I often think of my own family situation. And even though I work here and I work with the special needs community and nonprofits, I think as a family member, you have to sit back and think about some of these things. When you're planning for the future, I think medical expenses can play a huge role in it. Initially, when my son was born 10 years ago, he was not medically involved. Ten years later, it has certainly changed. So so those are some of the things we ask families to think about. You don't have a crystal ball, and we all know that. But when you're sitting down to plan for the future, you need to take into consideration maybe some medical expenses that the person may have. Do they need therapy every day? Will they need it more as they age? Some of the other things is, you know, the educational and housing needs. Everybody wants something different for their dependent, and some dependents want something different for themselves. Where do you want them to live? You need to consider it. You need to have the conversation with the individual or other family members to make some of these decisions. But you need to start thinking about the whole process. Where are they going to live? What type of schooling do they want to go to? Are they going to go to school? Would you like to homeschool them? Those are some of the things that we think the family or the team, which we often refer to, our planners are like a quarterback, and the family is a team making decisions and helping the person get through the process. So these are some of the things that they should start off thinking about.
3: But to echo what uh, Kelly's saying on that point, Um, If the family has a vision of the future when they're no longer going to be around caring for that person, uh, one of the interesting things that MetLife has done is created a calculator that will help family members calculate all those different areas and more that Kelly brought up, including, you know, do you want to provide a fund, an annual expense fund for, say, uh, you know, special equipment expenses or total housing expenses if they can live somewhat on their own or semi-independent? Um, uh, personal needs expenses What about, you know, I know that kids that have special needs They like Nikes just like anybody else And uh, maybe they you need to calculate what that's going to cost Over the course of a person's lifetime Especially considering that many individuals with developmental disabilities Will live a very, very long time after their parents have passed Right
0: and Some of the, um, No, go ahead, Kelly
1: Yeah, and something else, number two, would be review your beneficiary designations. I think we get calls every day from individuals that have done what they believe is the planning process, and they're completely done and they've done everything they possibly could do, but what they find out is that maybe a great aunt or someone – that they were unaware of is trying to help them out and left their dependent as a beneficiary on their life insurance policy and now the person has over two thousand dollars, and it will bar them from government benefits, so right. it's really that's what we, I was we, referring
0: to earlier, yes,
1: yeah, exactly. Yep. I mean, it's review your designation, but what I've often said is, you know, my parents are great, and they want to treat my son like the rest of my children, but they need to treat him a little differently. They can leave him money, but they have to leave it to the special needs trust of. They can't just mention him outright because they could bar him from benefits that he may need the rest of his life. We also have families that somebody leaves a piece of art or a piece of jewelry that exceeds the $2,000. You don't really want to do that. We encourage the families to have the discussion, not just with the immediate family, but the extended family. And anyone that has an interest in helping or providing for this person, it's great. It's wonderful. We definitely want them to include the individual, but we need to make sure that they do it the right way so that the person doesn't pay the price in the long run.
0: You know, I just had a a question, though. When you are choosing a beneficiary, um, you know, like for us, what we've done is, um, you know, we have – uh, several children we have the the will set up so that everyone gets you know their portion, and then we have an account uh, a trust that will be set up um specifically if any of them should have any special needs now, whoever is going to be in charge of this account do they have tax ramifications because of that like say that my oldest child um you know gets this trust account to be held for any type of special needs who would um incur the um the taxes
3: well as far as taxes are concerned there could be tax ramifications depending on how the trust is funded Um, it's just because it's sequestered into an account that is going to not uh, touch the hands of the person that has the special need doesn't mean it's exempt from other taxes so the trustee is simply acting on behalf of that person and very well may have to file returns for them as well
0: okay Okay. Now, number three is have a family meeting to discuss your dependent's future needs. So this has got to be tough Um, because, you know, let's face it, you're asking a lot of somebody. So how should a family member approach this, and what are some tips that you can give them? Well, I think this one was the one that I struggled
1: with the most because my son is very involved, and I have a lot of great family members that would love to help me But taking care of him every day is a lot to ask. And I think when we talk about staying up at night, this is something that definitely kept me up at night because I have a great sister that would be fantastic in caring for all of my children. But when it comes to the financial side of it, I definitely would not choose her. So when it was my family's time to discuss the future needs, we were realistic. We didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But on the other hand, too, my son will need this care his whole life, so I had to make the right decision. So as a family, we decided that she would get the responsibility of caring for everybody, but my brother-in-law would work with her to make the financial decisions. And what we're trying to say with this particular point is that it's really up to the family to do what's best for the dependent and to have a meeting and get everybody's feelings about what they do or don't want to do Some family members, especially siblings, they've had this their whole life. Some of them resent the the sibling with a special need because their whole life has been consumed with it. So though they love them, they just don't want to do it the rest of their lives. Other people are married or they've moved on and maybe their spouse isn't interested in helping with a sibling or a dependent with special needs. So we encourage the family to have a discussion and really decide as a team what's best for the person and who really wants to do it, and also have a backup plan. What we decide today could change in another year or in ten years. Who would be the next set of individuals that would care for him?
0: So we're really you do have to... my outline. Um, I, do you not, that, I do not. That was, I do that not. That's one of my outline. questions: is Can you put get a backup? I mean, say somebody um, you know tries. It's hard. Let's face it. I mean, we are struggling and they're our children. Let's just say somebody is really trying to be a guardian and it's just for whatever reason not working, for their, you know, things that come in their life. How would that then, how would an an alternate be chosen? Is that something that you do in advance or?
1: You know, I think it depends on the family. I do have an alternate in the event that maybe my oldest daughter isn't able to do it. We do have somebody in mind Um, that could possibly do it. And that's up to a family, and we try to encourage a family to write down and do as much as possible when they're alive, because we often hear from families that no planning was ever put in place. Nobody ever wrote anything down, and they believe that this person wants to take care of their son, but the person doesn't. So we encourage families to come up with a list and evaluate it each year. I think we look at who we have on our list and all of our Paperwork every year to say, is this person still the right fit? My son's medical needs have gotten greater over the years. Is this person still going to be able to do it, or my my child or my dependent really isn't a good good fit with this person anymore? Do we need to consider rewriting this? So we do. We try to encourage the discussion to happen all the time and to write a backup plan in the event your well, plans. Well, what,
0: what what about the, God forbid. There is no one. There are people that have no one. They have been abandoned um, for whatever reasons. Right. How does a parent avoid their child becoming a ward of the state? Is it possible? Can there be provisions made that um, maybe they choose a residential plan, a uh, treatment facility that would be nicer, let's put it that way, sure. than if they I were mean, a ward of the state?
1: Sure. I mean, there are nonprofits that will work with the family. We have many um, people that call us that never thought that they would outlive um, their children, and now their children are no longer children. Their children are in their 60s, and this person has presented themselves at a nursing home or an emergency room with her 60-year-old son, and she doesn't have a backup plan And she'll call a local nonprofit, and some nonprofits do have people that work in a guardianship program who will be a a guardian, you know, to help the person. So the nonprofits do help these individuals that don't have anyone, and I would encourage anyone to look into their local nonprofits and give them a call and see if there's any way that they can help them or tell them what they need to do while they're still alive to make these plans.
3: Bob, I think
0: number four – oh, go ahead.
3: I just wanted to echo one thing. We need to remember that there's different roles that we're we're having here, and of course, the guardian is is the most important role of things in all care, in all cases, and the most difficult uh, one to deal with, whether it's going to be a uh, facility-based or whatever, a nonprofit or a family member. But as it relates to the special needs trust, there's also the selection of the trustee and a backup trustee, and maybe even a third trustee. And a new concept that was actually introduced by one of our uh, special needs uh, attorneys that uh, is affiliated with our program located on Long Island uh, is the trust protector role, which is uh, a growing role in many states, and it does vary by state. But uh, those roles are are clearly defined to help protect the interests of that person that has a special need. So obviously the day-to-day guardianship is one issue. Financial decisions can be made by a trustee. If they're unable or unwilling un, uh, to do, they could go to a, uh, a backup. And to make sure that they're doing it right, you could have a, trustee, a trust protector named in many states. So it's a critical area to, to look at all those different roles and who might be the best fit. And it's not always, you know, uh, the, the family member. It could be a professional.
0: All right, And, you know, I was going to say to you, um, f- um, number four on the list speaks to you because it says to speak with a, spe- a special needs financial professional and create a team of professionals. So can you speak to that? Because, I mean, I, I think there's nobody more proficient at putting teams together than special Um So if you could just, um, you know, let us know about that.
3: Sure. Um, well, just as an example, MetLife has 10,000 affiliated representatives around the country. And of that there's two hundred that are special needs planning uh, trained and i 'm a certified financial planner. I studied hundreds and hundreds of hours to earn my education in that area and it wasn 't until after I got that designation uh, that that badge or stripe on your arm that I learned how how irrelevant traditional planning is to families that have special needs so don't think that just your local uh, family cousin insurance agent uh, is the right person. Make sure that they have a special needs uh, a specialty in their in their firm, and then I would also, of course, uh, be seeking uh, somebody that has uh, an affiliation with a special needs planning attorney. Um, the uh, elder law attorneys are very similarly trained in in this area, so and the laws are very similar for them as well. So they generally are going to have an existing team that they can work with, and they can uh, also uh, refer you to many of the nonprofits that they might already have an affiliation with. And we have uh, an extensive listing of that in our website that is available.
0: Okay. And also um – Government benefits. We went into that briefly before, um, but you know, Medicaid and Social Security. I think people think you know you have to be um, a senior citizen to get these benefits. So, can you speak a bit, um, whoever you know would like to, about government benefits?
3: Um, Kelly, why don't you take that one?
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: Um, I I think that people don't realize that they can apply for some of these programs and some of these benefits, and not every single one is means tested. So I think that they need to contact their local Department of Developmental Disabilities, the name may be different depending upon the state they're in, and discuss with them their particular situation and what services are out there and available for them. Social Security Administration also has a number for families to call into as well as you could request an appointment to go in and sit down and see exactly what your family is eligible for it does vary state to state some of the federal programs are different but some of the states have local programs that a family could t- potentially be eligible for but until they have that discussion and talk about their particular situation what they're paying in copays how much their expenses are they really won't know so we try to encourage families to take a look and if they don't want to go to you know social security or anywhere else they can call a local nonprofit and speak with them whereas they are service providers and they do have some of that information for families
0: okay and um you know the will uh you know some of us have a will some of us don't have a will some of us assume that you know well, when I die, whatever is left will go to my child, and that could be a very big mistake. Um, So can we talk a bit about setting up and reviewing the will and testament?
3: Sure. Well, first of all, everybody does have a will. Uh, Most people don't believe that. but uh, That's true. (laughs) uh, Because uh, each state has a will in absence of a written will and or a revocable trust or trust for special needs planning. And um, I'm... I'm going to guess that a family that has a special needs situation is typically not going to like what the state version says, and that's why it's very important to have a will and to take the time. In Arizona, as an example, you could take a you know a big uh, yellow pad and, and write it out in uh, in pencil, and it's called a holographic will, and it's valid, and it doesn't have to be expensive. It's just uh, it's your, you're expressing what you want to have happen to your estate. If it's a will, you're going to obviously have to go through a probate process where you're subjected to creditors and claims and that type of thing, and that's why many people opt for the uh, the privacy and the organization of a trust which uh, simply uh, puts all of your assets into a vehicle that um, is going to be undisturbed upon your death. Uh, you are the trustee during your lifetime, and it would just simply flow to the next trustee uh, that would be on the list that you have selected and you can change during your lifetime uh, to uh, to to manage the, uh, the the funds for the ultimate benefit of the beneficiaries, whoever they may be, whether they have a special needs or not.
0: Right. And you know, I think that there's a lot of terms that parents hear, and I'm not so sure that they really know what they mean. So, um, can you just? Specifically, just briefly, explain what a special needs trust is and how it is different than just having money in an account for a child.
3: Um, Sure. Uh, First of all, I like to give an analogy of what a a revocable trust is. It seems to be very popular in our workshops, and I use uh, a half-filled empty water bottle as an example. And I say, okay, if you are creating a family trust, the vessel of the water bottle represents the trust you can, during your lifetime, take the cap off, you can pour water out, you can put water in, you can do whatever you want with it because you are the trustee and the grantor of this trust. And um, what's what's written on the label of the bottle uh, would be your instructions. It might be the Smith Family Trust, and it says who the ultimate beneficiaries are. So that's kind of neat in understanding, you know, the word trust seems to make a lot of people cocoon, if you will, and they, they they think that it's going to be a really expensive and complicated thing to to deal with. The difference between a regular or a revocable family trust and a special needs trust, in a nutshell, is there's a provision that simply states that for the person, or if a person in your family has a special need, uh, you don't disinherit them necessarily, but you sequester funds and uh, and put it in the hands that portion in the hands of the trustee to make decisions on behalf of that beneficiary. So, for an example, if uh, $100,000 of life insurance showed up in in this trust, it wouldn't go directly to that person, which would then block their government benefits that they desperately need to continue um, going forward.
0: Or have the capacity to manage, right?
3: Absolutely. So um, the trustee might say, okay, well, we're going to use this $100,000 for the other things, those other ifs in life, if you will, Uh, the the weekend uh, camp uh, in the summertime, a new pair of tennis shoes, uh, because, you know, just because you're in a wheelchair doesn't mean you don't have uh, a a desire to, uh, you know, look right, you know, and and you shouldn't have to be that ward of the state in in rags. So they can make those decisions and write the checks directly to the retailers or service providers on behalf of that person, bypassing the fingers of the person that uh, is is for the benefit of and uh thus can not interfering with uh other benefits that they might be enjoying from the government.
0: Right. And you know also, you know, th- th- it's not like um they're going to someone is going to be walking around penniless. They will have um, you know, spending money you given to them or whatever. Um, sure. you know, it, when you're talking about um guardianship or conservatorship, what is the difference between the two? What does it entail in getting someone to be a guardian or a conservator. And is this something that would be discussed with the, say, teen or young adult with special needs?
3: Well, as the, as the list lists, uh, you know, caregivers must apply for the guardianship or conservatorship to maintain legal control over financial and health care decisions once a, a dependent reaches age 18. And it can very often take over a year to get this done, depending on the state that you live in, um, this, starting the process early uh, when the dependent turns, say, 16 or 17, would be a wise decision. Uh, there's different levels, as Kelly had mentioned earlier, uh, of guardianship and conservatorship available, depending upon that uh, special needs person's capabilities and needs. Uh, for example, a limited guardianship could be solely for financial and healthcare-related decisions. Um, and otherwise that person could make the rest of the decisions about their daily life.
0: And is there a differentiation between the two, a guardian or a conservator? Doesn't one have to do more with financial?
3: Yes, and the guardianship is is making the decisions about the um, day-to-day living arrangements or uh, depending on the level of of, uh, guardianship. Uh, conservatorship is just what it sounds like. It's generally more for the uh, the role of protecting assets.
0: And the letter of intent. I mean, I, I know the legal the letter of intent is not a legal document. It's not legally binding, but it's probably one of the most important things a parent's going to do. So, um, can you just explain what a letter of intent is? What should be in there? And you know, how would this be able to be enforced if it's not a legal document? Well, I think
1: the letter of intent is one of the most important documents for everybody, regardless of their means. Absolutely. Because it's really like the letter to the babysitter. It's a letter to say, these are the things that I need done. These are the things that my son enjoys. These are the things that he absolutely hates. These are some of the activities that are fantastic for him. These are some of the therapies that work really well for him. These are some of the medications that he has tried and that have failed. These are some of the most fantastic doctors and physicians in the world, and these are some of the worst. Um, These are people that I wouldn't bring my dog to. (laughs) These are people that I would absolutely entrust my son's life to. It's all your wishes and dreams. It's your religious wishes. It's your wishes for housing. It's anything that you want for that individual. It's everything. It's everything. What I've often told people, they said, how do you possibly – you know, manage your letter of intent, my letter of intent is in a notebook, and we update it on a monthly basis because my son's care is continually changing. I have friends that update it once a year. They look at it at an annual review and try to make provisions or changes depending upon the person's care. But it's really the letter in the event that one day you leave and you don't come back. It is the instructions. It's the booklet that somebody can turn to to say, you know what, driving him around in a vehicle, go for a half hour is exactly what's going to calm him down and what he needs. And meanwhile, everybody's scrambling, trying to figure out what he's trying to say to them.
0: So right. these But are it's, some not, of it's things... not something that's enforceable, but it's something that's a guideline well. for whoever is going to be um, the But guardian. you know, Miriam,
1: it has been used in a court of law as the family's exactly. wishes. It is not a legally binding document, but certainly judges have taken a look at it and considered it. And some of the other situations with individuals, I have a son that has a lot of respiratory issues. It's very difficult to explain the type of therapy that he needs, so we did it on a videotape, and that's part of my letter of intent. It's really what the family wants and what the family needs, but we encourage them to put Everything in a letter of intent because it and is And you know what it's also booklet. important
0: for? Because, you know, people are people. And let's just say that someone, well, you know, could be well-meaning and, you know, agrees to be the guardian, but they're not following through on what you had wanted. You know, this right. is where another family member could step in and say this was the letter of intent, this is what they wanted, and protect that, that person who may not have their own voice. Um, we, we don't have much longer to go. But I did want to just say that it's something that's probably very obvious and a lot of parents are saying this sounds great this is wonderful i would love to have this you know burden off of my mind but i can barely afford the care for my child how am i going to afford setting up um you know setting up a a will and all of the other financial planning involved so how could a parent get this done if they have a limited income
1: Well, I think that some of the local agencies help them as well. Um, Local state agencies will help them with the guardianship issues if they're not able to afford it, as well as setting them up with information regarding a will or a trust. Many of them don't need a trust because... Um, They don't have the means to do it, though it is a fallacy that you need to fund trust to have one. Many families feel like, I don't have any money, so I can't have a special needs trust. A special needs trust can be set up and it can be unfunded until somebody passes away. So that's one of the things families need to keep in mind. But the other thing is, if the family really can't afford to do any of the steps, they need to consider doing the letter of intent to at least have the instructions about the care for the person for the rest of their
0: life, and you know you need to prioritize too I mean, I mean my husband's an attorney, but when it comes to really something intricate like this, he will refer to someone who specializes in special needs um you know trusts, and Absolutely. you know this is something that i mean it, it it's a, it's an important expense. Because, you know, this is the life, um, you know, that you've worked so hard for to give them a quality of life and to get them to the point where they're at. And, you know, you really just need to protect yourself. So, um, you know, and MetLife, I mean, you do it best. So why don't you give us your information where parents can go? Because, as I said, you know, you spent a lot of time doing this. Um, you know, you walk in our shoes. And, you know, I, I personally feel there's no better choice for parents than to um, to go to a MetLife representative for this and to see your division. So where can we find you, and where can they take that um, quiz and the calculator? Um,
1: and that's great. And we really appreciate you having us so that we could share this information with you as well as all the families that you serve. We do have a website. It's www.metlife.com backslash All one word. And our calculator is on there, as well as our nonprofit information and resources for the family, in addition to the torn security blanket. If a family member or somebody wants to take a look at that as well, it is on our site, and we would be happy to help them. Um, in any way that we could, and there is contact information in there, but we would encourage them to take a look at our website, and I think that might be helpful for them.
0: Okay, and Bob, where can um, someone reach you? Um, You're out in Scottsdale, Arizona, if we have some listeners in the the, uh, Arizona area. Um, Do you have a website? Yes,
3: uh, www.westbrookfinancial.com, and uh, we're at 1-800-237-7098. And we actually work in 22 states, so I travel quite a bit. Oh, okay. And uh, happy to assist with these workshops. I would like to encourage your uh, audience, if they're an employer or if they work for a large employer, we've found that employers can be a big help, especially with 40 hours plus per week going for care. If employers were willing to provide us employee benefit a workshop where employees can go and get this kind of education, we found in the study that seventy five percent of the respondents would welcome the opportunity to get this kind of education at the workplace
0: you know adam that I, that was something actually i didn't get to and um that was a finding that you had that people are not using their employers um as as a resource as much as they should what What are we missing from um employers
2: well i th- I think what people um when we asked them sort of what they what are some of the potential resources their employer could actually offer to help support them, um you know the the a lot of it was on on the access and education, so they really were looking to rank you know access to a special needs planner or, or workshops about special needs planning um, as well as access to legal services as things that an employer could do to help make their lives easier. Um to help them really get, solve these solve these issues that they're working on. And right. we yeah, do provide think,
1: the educational workshop across the country, and we do not charge for the educational workshop, and we do educate families about the planning process, and we do it at many employers across the country. It's a 45-minute program with 15 minutes for questions, and we do that across the country
0: as well. With, wow, with, that is um, fantastic. With changing, and Marianne, if um, they're interested... I was, I'm I was sorry. Just if that they're with,
1: interested with in that, that. program um, of having an educational workshop, they can certainly contact me. Uh, my email address is kpiacenti p i a c e n t i at metlife dot com, and we do that in every state in the United States. So if they have a support group or an employer and they're interested in it, we would certainly be more than happy to help them. Oh, out. I
0: will be. I will be flashing <laughs> that yeah. all over the internet. <laughs> Adam, you were going to say. Uh, it's Actually, Bob, I was
3: going to mention that okay. with the changing scope of wellness benefits uh, in the workforce, we found, and I, I like the, the phrase that I heard recently, that financially fit equals physically fit. And getting this education in the work site can be a great wellness benefit. So people can, you know, the economy has been tough enough. Uh, if they were able to get this off their plate as well, you got to believe that they're going to be a little more Physically fit as well, because they're not going to have the the pressures of the financial issues uh, on their mm-hmm. on their shoulders. so we think it's a great wellness benefit.:
0: Oh, I mean it's just I'm not kidding. I mean it's, it's, you really are helping the special needs community so much and and I don't think really anybody was really aware that you even have this, so I am just so thrilled to get this information out. Adam, can you tell people how to get in touch with you?
2: Sure, the actual best way to get in touch with me is through Kelly, but uh, if anybody has any questions on the study or, or, or anything else like that, uh, I'm available at azambudo, and that's Z-A-M as in Mary, B as in boy, U-T-O, at metlife.com.
0: And I want to say a special thank you to Pat Connor, who um, really has helped me put this interview together, and, um, you know, he, he's just outstanding. He's also, um, he works with you, Kelly?
1: Yes, he does.
0: Yeah. Um, A special thank you. Um, Well, I want to thank you all for joining us. This really is probably one of the most important interviews that um, I've done. And um, I thank you very much for what you do, and I thank you very much for joining me. Great. Thank Thank you you for having us.
1: Thank you. You're
0: welcome. You're welcome. Bye-bye. As I end the show each time, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on the Coffee Clutch. Thank you for joining us, everyone.